Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Ward, and my guest today is Yannick Benjamin. Welcome. Good morning. Right, where have you come in from? New York City. You're a New York native? I am, born and raised. Yeah? Yes, I am. Uh, how did you get into wine? My family, my dad's from Brittany, my mom's from Bordeaux, and they both made a uh, life in the restaurant business in uh, New York. So you're, but you're French, basically. Yeah, exactly. You were, you were born in the States, right? I'm born and raised in the States, that's so correct. How did they meet? They met in New York City. My dad came, in, uh, came to the States in 63, my mom in 71. And uh, they met right there. No, it was love at first sight. I guess, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> you never are. They sit around, you folks. Oh yeah, they're, they're both around. My dad's 79, and my mom is uh, 69. Cool. Okay. And you speak French? I speak French. Yeah. So you spoke? Did you grow up? Was it a French-speaking household? Or? 100% with my mother. With my dad, up until the age of 10, it was always in English because my dad always worked in restaurants and he always worked with French people. So it was his way to practice English with me. So did they come over for love or for work? Or? Well, they met. They met here. In, they met at in New York. They both came separately, but my dad came right after the French Algerian War in the, um, 1963, and he followed his two brothers for work. That's what it was. He wasn't in the. Was he in the war? Or he not? was in the war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you? Was were you kind of like really aware of that as a kid? That was there any trauma or? Well, no, I didn't. I didn't know the severity of what the war was all about until I got older, and it wasn't something that we exa- exactly discussed. I mean, you know, he would mention it a couple of times for sure, but it was not ever discussed, and nor did I ever see any side effects of like being a veteran of war. Okay, so in terms of your upbringing, comfortable or hard scrabble? In the home, comfortable outside a bit different i mean i grew up in new york city i grew up five minutes from times square walking distance i grew up in a neighborhood called hell's kitchen it was a a very multicultural uh, neighborhood but it was during the height of the aids epidemic it was during the the height of uh, the the crack era prostitution was rampant but i guess it's growing up in that neighborhood everything just seemed kind of second nature it never just seemed like it was part of the landscape i never thought much about it but it was a very different way of growing up for sure there was a rough area but with its own sense of community in, in a kind of slightly uh, for the most part i mean anarchic way yeah yeah my parents were very good at sort of uh i wouldn't say shielding me because it was almost impossible but to give me another another lifestyle when i entered the apartment Okay, so you got, it seems like you've got a hard-working family with decent values. 100%. Right, so uh, what was your next move after high school and stuff? Were you a good student? That was okay. It wasn't great. I mean, uh, I started working at a very young age, and pretty much by the age of 14, I had already committed to the concept that I wanted to be in the hospitality industry, and so just worked really hard, worked part-time jobs, and, uh, you know, I already had it in my mind that I wanted to go to some kind of trade school for hospitality. I didn't want to waste my time going to college, you know... Uh, taking liberal arts courses, just didn't want to do it. But my dad did ask me, he said, all right, well, okay, fine. Even though I don't want you going into the hospitality industry, um, it seems very clear that that's what you want to do. But can you just go to college, see if you like it? And then I, I did go to college, you know, three, four months, and I got kicked out, and that was pretty much it. You got kicked out? Yeah, I expelled. I, I mean, I, I just, my grades were, I mean, I, I can't, I could not even tell you what I did. Really? What just didn't engage you at all? No, no engagement. 
no engagement whatsoever. But did you make any friends there? It was not like you isolated kid. You well, I, my my college was uh, it was Baruch College. It was right in the center of Manhattan. So no, I didn't. I I don't think I made. Not that I was a, a loner. It just was I was working already full time. So I was just going there. But it, no, and then finally. Uh, it was time to go. Then your parents just must at that point, okay, listen, he, he knows where he wants to go and we're not going to try and shoehorn him into an academic... Correct, yeah. correct. It was a done deal. So what was your first sort of official job? I mean, uh, and how old were you at that stage? So uh, finally, uh, my dad said, well, if you're going to work in restaurants, you've got to work at a, a great place. And then um, right at that point um, in 1997, this gentleman named Sirio Maccioni, an Italian gentleman, opening up the second rendition of Le Cirque 2000. And Rusilka, he hired me. What does that? What's that then? Listen. It means a circus, but it was a, It's an institution in New York City. It's now closed, but it was around for uh, almost forty years. He was open at one place, at one location, for about uh, fifteen year, twenty years, I would say. And then he moved, and then the, the second reopening of it was a big deal. And um, I was hired there, and it was quite an amazing experience and, and job. What made it special? The tension, the well, the, the stress. Definitely the tension. Definitely the amount of media attention that was getting the power players of New York with the celebrities that were coming in and for me to be um, just barely a day over 18 years old in an atmosphere like that even though I had worked in restaurants it was something completely different it was you know Christoph Silver and Bernadette Plates and it was just the best of the best and I, I you know it was just some looking back it was very hard for me to comprehend what was going on at that time. I mean, were you sort of starstruck or were you quite easy with that? Okay, someone famous walks through the door, they sat down, they just like any other human being, they order their food, they eat it and they go home. Yeah, I wouldn't get starstruck, but I, I was impressed and blown away by the actual quality of the people that were coming in. Okay, so it wasn't like a rough way. It was obviously high class, but well run with no, not overly pretentious or snobby or... Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> oh, that, was, that was like well, fishing. You just gave it a little nibble. Okay, next next step. But this, next, was your, this was this is sort of founda- foundation stone. You, this is definitively the moment when your life changed. My life changed, and then after that, I stayed there for uh, two years, and I the money was incredible. I was, I mean, I was living a very good life at a very young age, and then at that point, I said, well, I'm, I don't want to fall into complacency. So I started working at different restaurants. I worked at a restaurant called Oceana. After Oceana, I went to go work for a uh, famous chef called uh, Jean-Georges Van Richten. And after him, a restaurant called Atlas. And then I spent a good amount of time at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, along with working part-time at an Italian restaurant called Felidia. So so you were quite, uh, this is a technical term, but promiscuous. You You were really getting as much... Exactly. Exposure to different ways of working, Correct. different Correct. food styles, different, exactly. different atmospheres. I, yeah, super so, motivated. So what was your strategy there? Was it you wanted to open your own place and, and suck up as much juice from all these other people and say, right, yeah. I'm do my own thing? Or? The objective was to learn as much as I could with the hopes of eventually opening my own place or just move up the chain ladder and that was it. Well, you were moving up the chain. Though, I you? was certainly moving up and I was I was trying to absorb as much as I could. It was like that's that, this is my moment to learn as much as I can. What was important to you, the business side of it or the or the the front of house the, the actual food, the plates, the cutlery, the the napkins? That's a good question. At that moment, it was all about front of the house type of stuff, you know. Probably looking back, I wish that I would have found that mentor who would have showed me like operations because it's something that we a lot of people when they enter the business don't pay attention to. So operations means operations numbers, P&L statements, all that, you know, crazy stuff the uh, profit and loss okay. profit and loss sorry about that like the real important stuff mm-hmm. that if you want to ever open up your own restaurant 
for me it's going to be unlikely <laughs> okay next up how old were you by this time so by the time i did all of this i was 25 years old free time what were you a bit of a wild kid going out night clubbing no or were you for the most part um because by the time at the age of 23 i had met my fiance at that time so that was my first real girlfriend my first you know so i started to calm down i mean i was i was still going out i was still having a good time for sure but you're not quite an energetic lad very energetic yes I'm, yeah. I'm like up here you're very you know, yes for sure your yeah. brain is not never sleeping yeah for the most part yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah but i do have the ability when i like hit the bed i can i can pass out so that's a good thing yeah. okay we'll keep going <laughs> <laughs> so but uh but at the age of 25 and then i actually got married um so things were you know things were I wouldn't say things were settling down, but yes, for sure, uh, I wasn't as why old, but you know, 25 is still young. Yeah, but yeah. steady income, somewhere to live. Yeah, things. I, life I, partner. Exactly correct. Yeah, and, and you're moving up in the chain of command. Correct. Next step. Well, unfortunately, you know, I get married in July of 2003, and I had a, a car accident in October of 2003. So three months after, which was quite overwhelming, to be quite honest with you. And at that time, I was working at a great restaurant called Atelier at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Quite Atelier. Su- yeah, it was quite successful. So a car accident left me permanently paralyzed. And so that, that was a real you know, game changer, and obviously. Okay, so when you say paralyzed, what do you mean? Yeah, car accident, it left me permanently paralyzed from uh, pretty much the, the belly button down without the use of my legs. So no motor and no uh, sensory. So basically, uh, I don't feel anything below that area. Yeah, I sustained a spinal cord injury at the thoracic six uh, level in, um, area. I mean, obviously that was that was a life or death as well, wasn't it? I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, what was wild about that car accident, to be quite honest with you, was if you would have come to visit me at the hospital that day of, you would have seen me and you'd be like, okay, that you look pretty good actually. There were no scrapes or marks on my face. Um, Except for the fact that, you know, it was just, uh, I, I had a burst fracture and it left me paralyzed. That was it. So, yeah. I mean, the car was in pretty bad shape, but everything else in my body, I was fine. I mean, I did, I, I, I broke two ribs, but, you know, I didn't break any other bones besides my actual vertebrae. Out of all the bones I could have broken, I, you know, I broke my, the worst part, the worst one. So how did you rebuild your life? Well, it wasn't overnight. I can tell you that right now. It was uh, quite complicated. It was long. You know, even having to talk about this right now i wouldn't say it's painful but something that i it just puts me back in that same kind of place so what ended up happening uh i'm in the hospital uh i'm there till january 2004 2004 i'm trying to figure things out you know what my identity who who am i um clearly trying to go back to work in restaurants was going to be very complicated. How am I going to do that in a wheelchair? Because I'm, now I'm a full-time wheelchair user and all I really know at this point is restaurants. That lack of not having an identity or a sense of purpose um, to go somewhere was very, very hard to accept. And I wouldn't say that I was in a dark hole, but I certainly was not seeing the light, that's for sure. So that first year and a half was, I would say two years, was very, very, very hard. And I was just, I was relearning my body, you know, like my legs, how to, you know, I mean, I'm basically carrying dead weight, you know. So all of that, relearning the skill set of transferring on and off the shower bench, how to shower, how to put on a pair of pants, tie my shoes. I mean, all of this stuff, you know, it was, it was quite arduous. But you presume you had some kind of help from the medical 
people or not really? I, w- I mean, pretty much, you know, you, you're in rehabilitation for about three, four months. Which isn't very long. Which is not long at all because um, that's what insurance covers. After that, you do what they call like a, an outpatient rehabilitation. So you're going to physical therapy like twice a week and that only lasts for another three months. And then you're on, you're on your own after that pretty much. So it's a double whammy. I mean, so it was a triple whammy. Mentally, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, but absolutely. Mentally, physically, but also to your, your self-esteem is a... Oh, yeah, it was awful. Yeah. It was awful. I mean, that that's, again, I think that we all need that sense of purpose in life, and I simply did not have that. And I did actually, interestingly enough, I went back to, I was taking wine classes already by February 2004, went back to work part-time at the Ritz-Carlton, um, more just doing like office work, getting myself back acclimated to that whole lifestyle of work and, you know, learning how to like get around in a wheelchair with transportation and all that. But yeah, that was very, it was tough times. Yeah, mentally draining. Completely draining completely draining and so uh after that what ended up happening i actually started i was working a lot i was really pushing my body i was completely in denial that you know spinal cord injury you know i i you look at me now i'm healthy i do what I, you know i do a lot of great things but you know there's a certain maintenance to it you know if you if you don't take care of it a lot of things can get kind of out of control very fast such as you know, listen, I, I, you know, as I said, I don't, I don't feel um, from the belly button down. So I don't have any, I don't have any sensation, nor do I have any control of my bladder, uh, which, you know, at the age of 25, you know, usually, you know, you, you're usually around 65, 70 years old when your bladder is out of control. And so I didn't have any control of my bladder. So you're prone to urinary, urinary tract infections. Um, and I didn't understand my bladder. There's a certain science to it, you know, so I'm outside. And I'd have a cup of coffee, then, whoa, oh, you shit, my pants are soaking wet, you know, and I'm like all the way in, in midtown, you know, in the heart of Manhattan with uh, soaking wet pants, you know, at the, it, it's very humbling to be in a situation like that. I cannot tell you. Yeah, it's kind of like adding humiliation to. Oh, there's, there's uh, humiliation, you're being humbled. Uh, but yeah, I mean, my, I mean, my bladder like drove me nuts. I mean, I wanted to go Game on Thrones on it sometimes and just take like one big sword and just like stab it. I mean, it's uh, when you, it's, it is one of the most discouraging things to have a bladder that just acts on its own. And of course, that took time to finally understand the science of it. And once I did it, I, of course, it was fine. But wow, that took a while to, to kind of get. It's one of the biggest issues. So uh, a lot of people think spinal cord can't walk terrible. I said. Oh my God, just give me full control of my bladder and I would be happy. So how does that, I mean, I don't want to go too much into yeah. personal stuff, but I mean, no, how I does that, care. people say, how, what happens if you need to have a pee? Yeah, for sure. So I have to catheterize myself. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm catheterizing at least, you know, upwards of like five to six times a day, which is always interesting, you know, when you're in a place like Italy, right? Because uh, 80% of the time, none of the bathrooms are accessible. So you've got to make up some bullshit excuse oh sorry um, um, and tell people you know I'm gonna be right back I gotta make a phone call but what you're actually doing is I've gotta go find the corner somewhere in the street to pee because there's no seriously can you not pee into a bottle or something or? no I mean I've, I've got the it's a catheter it's a closed bag system like, again I've got to be very careful. I've got to make sure bacteria is not entering my urethra. That because if that that now you know again urinary tract infections and I don't know if you've ever had one but they are awful. They are awful. They just they 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 knock you out. I'm sorry about that. I keep knocking that. Um, They keep they they will knock you out. I mean, we're you know I don't know uh, upwards of 102 uh, Fahrenheit, so I don't know what that would be in Celsius. 30. It's quite warm. 20 oh yeah. Or something, yeah, the chills and the whole. I mean, it's so your body temperature as well, and that can be I dangerous, don't. can't it? Oh, absolutely, it's terrible. I mean, it's one of the worst. I mean, if you want to understand death, just take. A, I mean, really, I mean that sincerely. It's just, uh, it's not fun. 
Okay, so back to your your work. You obviously had this massive, yeah, you know, adjustment. Right. How did you rebuild, and what do you do now? So right, pretty much. Then after that, the Ritz Carlton Hotel. I just closed. Or the restaurant inside was not doing well. At that point, I was very sick. And what happened? Um, this was a byproduct of me pushing my body. I developed what you call a pressure sore, which is very common in the spinal cord injury. What that means is because I'm sitting on my butt all day. If I don't have the right kind of cushion, if I'm not careful, basically you you develop like a it's a, a scab, but it's it's what they call stage four. It's basically I had a, a the size of a golf ball on my ass, so it was pretty bad. Um, and I was living with that for a couple of months, and then finally my body just gave out. Needed it to get us. I needed to find a doctor who would do surgery to close it back up. I needed an actual cool. plastic surgeon. But most doctors did not want to touch me because the fact that I didn't feel and all this. Finally, I found this incredible doctor, Dr. Thomas Steery, who uh, did the surgery. And then I was in the hospital for another two months, laying on my one side. Yeah, it was it was awful. And then finally, um, I had received a phone call while I was in the hospital from a gentleman named uh, Jean-Luc Ledoux, who had asked me if I was interested in coming to work at, at retail. And of course, I had to give him some nonsense answer because I'm here I am laying on my side. And I said, hey, Jean-Luc, great to hear from you. Unfortunately, I can't come and interview with you right now because, uh, you know, give, I don't know what I told him, you know. You didn't tell him the truth. I definitely did not tell him the truth. I didn't, you know, it was but a lot. why lo- not, though? Well, I didn't want to get into it. I was ashamed. I didn't want to come across as vulnerable. I just didn't want to, like, you know. I, I Actually, as a matter of fact, a lot of my friends and only a few of my family members knew that I was in the actual hospital because I put this big brave face for like two years and finally you know um, and I was at that point I can honestly say I definitely was in a dark uh, place. Okay. There's no doubt about that. I was in a dark place. But would you, had you thought about the S word or not? Suicide? No, definitely not. And I'll tell you very simply why. Because I was, what always motivated me to try to do better was the fact that my parents had worked so hard for me. You know, my, my, my dad stopped going to school at 14. My mom stopped going to school at 15. And they provided me with such a great life that I knew that that was the least I could do was like just try to make get out of the situation. And I so it never crossed my mind. There were moments where like, what the fuck? You know, like, you know, I mean, of course, there were absolutely there was no doubt about that. You know, I'm, I mean, there were moments where I wanted to give up. But what I will say to you is, do I understand why people get to that point? You know, and I know people are very judgmental when people on others that committed suicide, and I think it's terrible. But I I understand it, and I've I've had some very close friends, unfortunately, that uh, that went down that route, and um, you you understand. I get it. I do. I really do, because it's exhausting. It's exhausting to like have that burden on your shoulders mentally and physically. Oh, it's awful. You know, for sure. I get it. Yeah, so you can never switch it off, right? When you've got that black cloud of like depression, I mean, and anxiety. It's awful. I mean, like, I, you just got to say, like, what the... And I, I totally, totally get it. I, I, I don't... I have no judgments about that, you know? Okay, so, but you did get back on track, and how did you do that? Well, basically, what I, what I needed to do was I needed to... I was pushing my body way too fast. I was completely in denial of my body. I was trying to keep up with my old self. Yeah, you are 110% of them. I you? was, and, and what I needed to do was take a few steps back. So finally, um, I went and knocked on Jean-Luc Ledoux's door after a few months, and he's like, oh my God, where have you been? I haven't heard from you. And da-da-da. So, well, unfortunately, I hired people, and I can't hire you now. And I, you know, I said, listen, perfect. Do you mind if I work for you for free? And he said, what? I said, yeah, I just... 
I need to regroup. I need to, you know, so I, what I did was I went by like that European model of doing like a stagiaire, being an intern. And that's what I did. So I didn't have that pressure. And so if I woke up one morning, I felt tired. I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to go into work. So that's what I did. I, and I needed to rebuild and I needed to rebuild physically. I needed to rebuild obviously mentally. So it was really the best rehabilitation. I needed to go backwards before I can go forwards. That's a smart move. Yeah. And it was a great move. Yeah, that, was, was a life, that was another life-changing move for you. hundred percent life-changing move. Yeah. It was the best thing I could have done. Yeah, the brain taking a little bit more power. I, that's what I needed. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, so that was enjoyable. Yeah. And then finally, uh, and I actually stayed there for about another eight years collectively. While I was there, I, you know, then I started to compete um, Somalia competitions almost all the time. I started taking some certifications. I actually went back to college, finished college and got divorced, but it was, it wasn't, that was was very amicable. It was very quite simple. I have to say, we, we've remained friends. So that's great. Yeah. So yeah, and then uh, I think that's important to have that be have that pillar in your life, even though it's not one that's right next to you all the absolutely. time. Absolutely. No, no. And you know, listen, I'm 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 forever grateful. I mean, she was clutch. She was there. Her family was incredibly uh, generous and great to me. So uh, they were all Italian too, actually, funny enough. Um, but so nice. And so I'm very thankful. And when you go through a situation like that, you need this incredible network of friends and family. It's an emotional and physical support. So, so, you, so you had that strong family network and then it was recreating that professional network. That's what I, something that I needed and wanted. And so after a few years of you know competing a lot, and now really understanding my body and understanding how to, uh, that I could work and do certain things in a wheelchair and, and, and also understanding, listen, I hate this term that when people say nothing is impossible and I think it's such a shitty thing to say. I, I don't believe and I, 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 you know, one of my favorite movies is uh, Shawshank Redemption and, and in that movie they stress a lot about, you know, false hope, false hope. And so like, you know, I'm a big believer in that as well. Don't give people false hope, you know? And so I realized that I needed to work with what I have and then try to like build upon that. And um, while I was, you know, I never, I never embraced retail. So I was working in retail and it was just not my thing, but I was grateful to be working and I, I had an identity and I was traveling and things were going well, but I wanted to go back into restaurants, but I just didn't know how to, to go about that. That was the issue. Um, pretty much, so at this point, I was, I went back and I was keeping my ears to the grindstone if there was something open of it, but I knew that I needed to work in a place where the tables were sort of up, uh, set apart, you know, where I can navigate physically. And interestingly enough, talk about putting yourself out there. Um, this gentleman happened to be one of the judges at one of my competitions. And he's the general manager of a private club called the University Club. And he reached out to me and he said, hey, Yannick, um, listen, um, I remember you competing. Would you like to come in an interview as uh, for the you know, chef sommelier position at the University Club? And I said, and I thought he was bullshitting for sure. I mean, I, or, I'm like, this, do you remember me? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm like the guy. And I literally said, I'm the guy in the wheelchair. Because I had already, I've been, I've been traumatized at this point because I must have interviewed a hundred times for sommelier positions. And, you know, either I've been laughed at, literally laughed at, or just, you know, just nonsense. How did that make you feel though when people did that? Oh my gosh, the one time when I got laughed. Yeah, I mean, you must call people out. You're not the kind of guy. I mean, you... you there were people. There were people that I would call out for sure. And I would call them out when I f would find out who they hired instead of me. And I'm like, well, you know, can you tell me more about that? You know, why you hired that individual over me? And they're like, well, we can't. I'm like, yeah, but what are, well, can you tell me what qualifications I lacked? And give me some, give me some feedback. And they wouldn't do that. It was just such an uncomfortable situation for well, them. Well, it's good that you put them in that position. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like, you know, at least, you know, just fucking tell me. I either call it straight or 
get the F yeah, out of here. Yeah, exactly. Right? Don't yeah. waste my time. But no. Did that, did that make you even more determined or even? Oh, yeah. No, it definitely put a, I mean, it really, you know, I it, got the adrenaline going again. Yeah. And I, I would say, listen, a chip, on, not angry, but a chip on my shoulder. It forced me to really even study more, to really make myself more balanced so that I knew that when I got interviewed that I knew as much as I could. So my goal was to get a director of operations position and all that kind of stuff. But when this job came knocking on my door, I mean, I went to go see him and my, my interview was five minutes. That's it. And then he just asked me very simply like a gentleman. He said, what can we do for you? Well, how can we make you feel comfortable here? And I said, I don't know. I said, I didn't have the answer. He said, I said, well, if you don't mind, I will just you know, we'll just kind of see how we go. So see how we go, and that exactly. And he said, "Great," and that's it. And I, I've been there for almost six years. How proud did you feel on your first day? What were your emotions on your first day? Your oh, first, your first shift. On my first, just before I got there, I was shitting yourself. I was shitting myself. Oh my god! And you know, my butterflies. And I, I stopped by uh, this this little bistro. I, I had two beers. I mean. I needed to calm my nerves and the, you know, I mean, you know, when you're so nervous, I mean, I could have had five beers and it would have done nothing, you know, but it did help a little bit, but I was just so nervous. You know, I'm thinking, what are these people are going to, you know, the, 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 the members that, that are going to come to dine there, what are they going to think of me? A guy in a wheelchair serving wine and, and cocktails or whatever it is. And then I was also working with uh, these hardcore waiters. It was all unionized, but it turned out quite well. There were, people were very warm and very accepting. And it's been, it's been really a, a wonderful experience. As a matter of fact, I got married there. I got remarried. So it's a very special place. It's a very special building. And um, I mean, it was just like Jean-Luc Ledoux was sort of the first chapter for a new life and then this was like the second chapter of another life so basically you're talking about one chapter is the work the day to day the getting back into the routine and the other is the emotional you said it perfectly life yeah yeah and that's exactly and how did that I mean were your folks still around at this time oh yeah I mean they yeah still and they're still around right now um but did they did they advise you? Did they encourage you? Did they just say, you know what, he's our kid, he's he, whatever he wants to do. He, we know that he's a good decision maker. We're going to let him get on with it. Or, or I, they... I I would say after I'd gotten injured, they probably would have preferred that I got into the world of IT or to law or something where it was wheelchair friendly. Yeah, a sensible job with a, a sense guaranteed of job. income. Yeah, you know, and, for and sure. Normal hours. Exactly. Absolutely. And you know. This business, the hospitality industry, is very complicated. It's very difficult. I mean, it's, it's tough for tough for everybody. It's and tough for yeah, and and you know, um, let alone if you're disabled, then you 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 have a, a cold depend. I wouldn't say cold dependency, but you're heavily dependent on insurance. It's you know, it's it's tough. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it's it's definitely very risky. I mean, just in every every restaurant, you're going to have good customers and customers that spend money, but are a little bit rude or a bit arrogant or right. I mean, if somebody says something a little bit rude to you, that you know that they're saying it, just irrespective of your physical condition or anything. Right. Do you call them out, or do you just say, eh, just it's just a bit of an assholey uh, right. guy on table three. His yeah. wine was one degree too right. warm or something. Right. Just, like, just let that one go. Yeah. I, so what's very interesting is that I know there are times where customers really want to. I mean, I have to say one thing. I, I'm not saying. I mean, there are a lot of things that I'm bad at, but as far as like table side manners and going out of my way to make sure that person gets whatever they want. I would say I'm 99%. There's probably that one time, but for the most part, sometimes, I mean, three weeks ago, we had this disaster of a service and I, it, I mean, it was a disaster. It was probably the, I'm not making this up. It was the worst I had ever experienced in all my years. And I, I mean, I don't know what happened to the staff. It just it, all went wrong. I, everything you could imagine went wrong. I mean, customers are standing up, you know, just going ballistic. 
But each time they went to vent to me or complain, they they were biting their tongue. And it's interesting. And I know it has something to do with me being in a wheelchair. So they never exactly, they're, they're, they're always extremely polite. I'm sure they want to be like, motherfucker, like, where's my food? Where's the... They're like, they're like, listen, Yannick, you know? So they're very... They're very correct, politically correct when they talk. Which is okay. I mean, I think it's just a, just obvious. You know what, mate? Your 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 steak was like one degree cooler than it should yeah, have been. Yeah, of course. But, you know, and they're saying that to you, and you're thinking, you know what, mate? There could be slightly other problems that could it, go wrong in your life. I, I yeah, no. <laughs> Live for the moment. Yeah, no. I I mean, it's like you know, even like on this trip, you know, with some other individuals, and some people are complaining about their. They're not complaining about their hotel room, and I'm telling them, I love my hotel room. My hotel room's wheelchair accessible. I come to Italy a lot and every time they tell me it's accessible, it's not even accessible. So I'm even happy that that's accessible and that all I need is a place, if I can sleep on the floor and I've got a bathroom that's accessible, that's all I need. I'm like, okay, that you know, those are real first world problems. I mean, they yeah. really are. In terms of, um, you know, when you go home from work, yeah. like you're here tasting wine in, in Verona and, doing, and speaking as well. Yeah. Do you need someone to get you into bed or out of bed? You're totally independent. I'm totally independent. I'm on this trip by myself. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, no, I, everything. Yeah, I don't have anyone traveling with me or anything like that. Yeah. So yesterday you gave a, a speech. Yes. To um, the wine to wine audience, which is a B two B business to business event. Yep. Mm -hmm. What were your main messages? One message was to be thankful for what you have. Focus on the things that you do have. Don't focus on the things that you do not have. The goal is always to try to do better. You know, never get complacent. Never lose your curiosity. And you know, the, the fact that, and it's not just in Europe and or it's not just in the United States, but I think those of us that grow up in a first world culture, we have a tendency to complain quite a bit. I mean, it's quite amazing. But I also think what I wanted to focus on too is you know, if you're in the wine, if you're working in a winery, if you're working in distribution or as an importer or you're working in restaurants or in a hotel, you know, you have to really embrace the culture of hospitality. And hospitality does not stop when you punch out, you know, it's, it's a 24 hour, you know, seven day, you know, thing. Um, and, and I think a lot of people don't practice that, um, that concept of walking on the street. Hello, how are you? Or hey, can I help you with something? Or can I hold that door for you? I mean, if we practiced that more, if we incorporated that lifestyle, I mean, the world would be significantly a better place, you know? Should we leave it there? Not a problem. Thank you. We can carry on. <laughs> I don't... You got anything Did we miss anything? No, you're pretty good. You're, uh, yeah, I don't know. You hardly said anything, but you got me to say a lot. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> you know, you're very good. But you, you are an inspirational person. I, mean, I, I unfortunately had a, a huge glass window, which I was in the booth upstairs yesterday, no, and I could see you speaking. Yeah. You had that audience absolutely wrapped around your finger because you, you're saying stuff that we kind of know and we just conveniently forget. Right. And that we don't want to face up. And we have a cuddly industry, right? The wine industry is cuddly. You may not always earn a lot of money, or some people do, but you know, it's friendly and it's social. Yeah. And we're kind of a little bit divorced sometimes from, from the real world. And I think if there's any benefit with climate change, for example, is we're all linked to our jobs depend on that well, effectively. And, and, it's, and then we also forget the human side. And you know, we can talk about workers in the field in certain vineyards in certain areas of the world that really have nothing and don't get paid particularly well and exposed oh, to, 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 to pesticides and all the rest of it. That, yeah. um, and until we, we really think about the, the human aspect of the terroir equation, our industry, I think, will only be partially formed. And I think what you've done, turning a, a obviously a life-changing event into a life-changing experience and using that in a positive way, yeah, I mean, it's all it's all about sharing our resources, and and I I am certainly trying to do that. 
I was very blessed to know that when I left that hospital room, I had a family and I had friends. And not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not rich, I'm not wealthy, but I did have financial resources that allowed me to do simple home modifications, put in grab bars, make the doors wider, put in a couple of ramps. A lot of people did not. Um, I, was, I was on the same hospital floor with other individuals that went to nursing homes. And that's like the beginning of death, yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah. I just wanna be able to help those that have less help them figure out what their passions in life because this we only have a few it's not a very long life this goes by very fast and so we have to make the best of it but we also have to have the ability to be able to help others that need our help and and doesn't have to be monetary it doesn't have to be you know giving money but sometimes mentorship goes a long way and i think we can certainly do a better job in this industry with that Mm. You'd be a great mentor. I'm not just saying for your, you know, the situation, but also your wine, well, no- thank your wine knowledge and, and the fact that you've come from a family with values. It's clear, it shines through. I mean, um, you. you know, other people that had the situation that you've experienced, maybe from very privileged, spoiled families, right. just for example, everything is taken for granted. I would imagine would have found the transition much, much harder. Yeah. No. You know, life changing and, and kind of, oh, it's so unfair and it is unfair. But um, I think we did talk last night about your parents and I'm glad we did because... Um, because uh, it was kind of meant you warmed up a little bit this morning, but it's so important and it shines through and well done them. Well, thank you. Thank you very uh, much. Well done you. And yeah, leading by example, that's what it's about and that's what you do. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. No worries. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Listen to all of our pods on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Himalaya FM and on ItalianWinePodcast.com. Don't forget to send your tweets to at ItaWinePodcast.com.